So, Mark. Yeah. After I finished watching this week's movie, I texted you to make sure you watched all the way through to the end of credits. Yes. And I don't know if I want to say thank you or not for that. <laughs> I think it's important to get the director's entire vision of a movie. And credits are part of the movie. That's why, like, Netflix autoplaying into something else is bad after a movie. But it's also important because, like, you know, sometimes you got to stick around. Sometimes it's going to be Thanos. And sometimes it's going to be the cast of the movie sitting around having a fart competition. And who would want to miss that? Who would want to miss just four people farting? Just to be very clear, like, we're not kidding. I watched this movie on TNT, which meant I watched it with ads. So it took me like three hours. And I just kind of let the credits play while I then started checking my phone. And then all of a sudden, characters are back on screen. And I found myself watching Mark Addy, Alan Tudyk, Paul Bettany, and Laura Frazier have a fart competition. You know, I've I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times. I honestly don't know if I've ever seen that clip. I don't know if, if I've ever seen that like extra post credit scene. Uh, but I'm glad I'm glad I've finally seen it. I wish I was in the room when they were discussing to add that or not. It was a discussion. It was the actor's idea while they were making the movie. They shot it to be in a montage of the group hanging out. And then it got cut from the montage and the writer-director, Brian Helgeland, decided to put it at the end of the movie as a tag. And he got in a fight with Columbia Pictures about whether or not it was allowed to be there because they were like, right after the credits is our logo. We don't want a bunch of farts right next to our logo. Honestly, fair, Columbia. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I want to think of when I think of Columbia. I want to think of flatulence. That's, you know... The number one I mean, brand they association. Have, they have one of the best logos. Yeah, they do. The, She's like, iconic. Woman Columbia holding, uh, you know, standing before the big block letters. That said, we'll get into this later in the episode. Columbia had like a bunch of other issues they were dealing with when this movie came out. But the reason I brought this up at the start was because I wanted to know, Mark, what is your favorite fart in a movie? I mean... I think one of, if not the best farts in a movie, is Shrek killing fish in a pond of mud at the beginning of the Library of Congress inducted film, Shrek. (laughs) The the first of four montages in that movie, I think? (laughs) Yes, I think it was four montages in 90 minutes. That is a classic. Uh... A similarly gross one that I thought of was the centerpiece of the marketing campaign for The Lion King one and a half was a scene of Simba, Timon, and Pumbaa sitting in what looked like a like hot spring. They're all relaxing in water and there's bubbles. And then Pumbaa declares that he's calling it a night and gets out. And as soon as he gets out, all the bubbles stop, which frankly raises a lot of questions. <laughs> Because on the one hand, the joke is like, oh, they thought it was like a hot tub kind of thing, but it was just him farting continuously for the entire time they were in there, which is (laughs) itself kind of horrifying. But it also suggests that either they have never seen this pool before, or Pumbaa has always been first one in, last one out. I will say, it doesn't make sense, but I remember laughing. Yeah, and I mean, Pumbaa even has fart jokes in the original movie. There's an elaborate fart joke in Hakuna Matata that they don't, where they just dance around saying the word fart. My grandmother bought me Lion King one and a half on DVD. And I was like, there's no way this movie is going to be worth the like $5 she spent at Walmart for this film. And I watched it. Shockingly, one of the best Disney sequel films. It's one of the best direct-to-video ones. I haven't watched it in a long time, but... 
I mean, they were like, oh, so we made Hamlet with lions. We might as well make Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead on the side. Yeah. The other big fart that I thought of was in the Steven Spielberg BFG. The BFG, of course, played in mocap by stage legend Mark Rylance, keeps this, like, green drink that he loves to drink. And when he drinks it, the idea is, like, it's a... It's like a carbonated drink, but because everything is weird for giants, in a carbonated drink, the bubbles go down, which means that when you drink a carbonated giant drink, you don't burp, you fart. Yeah, I remember this from the book because I definitely was like, I was that kid that was aghast at the idea of this giant (laughs) farting. So in the Spielberg movie, these farts are like rockets. Especially when they visit Queen Victoria at Buckingham Palace and they feed her. And actually, you know what? The period suggested of Victoria, but the framing suggests it's Elizabeth II because she has a set of corgis who are given some of this as well. And when the corgis drink the like giant soda, they go launching around the room like bludgers in Harry Potter, just banging all over the place with the strength of their farts. That's just... so unnecessary it's one of the better scenes in that movie i refuse to watch it i mean you you shouldn't it's bad even before the reviews were coming out when people thought it might still be good i was just like i have zero interest in this you know as i as i think about it that same sort of like logic that causes corgis to rocket around a room because of their farts is the same kind of logic of like the fizzy uh, soda in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Another roll doll out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, there you go. So there's something about him and, and, and just like getting rid of expelling gas out of your body as, as being like a centerpiece of his writing. I mean, I think that's part of why like a certain type of kid likes Roald Dahl is his stories are a little gross. And a lot of the time kids are being told to be less gross. And with a lot of Roald Dahl stories, you can be like, I'm reading, so I'm doing what my parents and my teachers want. But there's like farts and burps all over the place. And then there's his book about poaching, which I read and was very confused about. Did either of you read Danny the Champion of the World? I love Danny the Champion of the World. (laughs) Because I just remember expecting a lot more shenanigans and less... Let's it's dig about into rights. Let's dig into the legal issues surrounding poaching and hunting rights on the king's land. I love that book. You got to get your kids in early, you know? You got to whatever you're you're thinking, you got to provide them a book to to follow you pretty quickly. So, did you have any favorite movie farts that you wanted to bring up? You know, it's it's from a movie I've only seen clips of, I have to be honest, but uh I think it's Norbit uh, uh, the one where it has, you know, it's just all, uh, uh, of course, now that you've asked me, I cannot think, Eddie Murphy. It's all Eddie Murphy, just sitting around a table, farting yep. over and over and over again. So it's not one fart, it's literally a scene of farts. Uh, that's what immediately sprang to mind. And of course, it, it's a- It's a lot like Pumbaa in a hot tub. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, it's that same, I think I saw it when I was around that same age where like, gross things are funny. Like, I honestly, like, I'm like, what, 26, about to be 27. Farting and fart jokes are still hilarious to me. You know, not a movie, though, but uh, I don't know. I think it was on Nickelodeon. There was the show. Uh, are you afraid of the dark? I think it's are you afraid of the dark? But there's this one specific episode where as people were getting brainwashed for whatever reason. But the way to 
kind of cure them was by farting. So like, the, yeah, the climax is this kid is like running away, but then he eats all these baked beans and he like jumps in the pool. And so like, just starts farting in the pool. And just so like, you see the bubbles come up and like, they start smelling it and like, wake and I think passing out and then waking up and being like, oh, what, what happened? You know, so that that also came to mind. Not a movie, but very iconic and is clearly stuck with me. Apparently, yeah. Toot toot. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I watched, like, all of the Disney package films from the 1940s back in November as part of an ill-advised project to watch all of Disney animation in release order. And these package films are, like, after movies like Pinocchio and Bambi and Fantasia were, like, super expensive, Disney animation was like, well, maybe we can put out movies and do it more cheaply by instead of, like, doing one full-length feature, we put out a couple of shorter stories packaged together. And in one of them, I don't remember which, um, probably like fun and fancy free or something. There was a story <laughs> about a tugboat named Little Toot. <laughs> and let me tell you, I chuckled every time the narrator said Little Toot. Oh, Little Toot. Oh, boy. All right, should we dive into this week's film, which is about a lot more than farting? But it's important that it ends with farts. Like, that's what it wants us to leave thinking mm-hmm. about. That is the final message of this film. But to dig into it, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to digging into one of the least important questions facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We're going to dig in, figure it out, and this week... We are taking a look at the 2001 medieval sports comedy, A Knight's Tale, uh, written and directed by Brian Helgeland, and we've got our friend Caleb here to talk us through it. Hey, happy to be here. Great to have you. So, this movie was your idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You 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 approached me and you were like, "Hey, you know, what movie do you want to talk about?" And this was the first movie that came to mind. I I unironically love this movie. And like, I have to warn y'all, I, I'm going to try and be as objective as possible throughout this, but I am a bit of a stan. So like, watch out. I, I will hear no, uh, I, I will, I'll do my best to hear, hear some criticism of it, but I just, I love this movie. It came to my mind first and foremost. And because it's, I think often overlooked, I th- but anyone who I know who's, who's seen it, love it. So, you know, it's just, it excites me and I love Heath Ledger. I mean, it just has such a great cast, you know, Paul Bettany, Heath Ledger. Uh, uh, um, and of course, I can't remember anybody else's name right now, but yes, it's a great cast just through and through. I mean, I don't think you need to hedge your appreciation for this movie. I had never seen it before and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really like this movie and I think it's really brave in 2001 to be so openly Renaissance fair. This is the first <laughs> openly Renaissance fair movie I may have ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I, we have to acknowledge, uh, of course, I was raised in and live in the great state of Maryland, and jousting is our state sport. So as soon as this movie started and I saw jousting going on, I was like, I feel like I'm at home. I just love that this movie committed to all of the Renaissance fair aesthetic in terms of time period mishmash, some modern things just dropped in for convenience and to keep the crowd entertained. Is Jeffrey Chaucer alive a couple hundred years? Maybe not a couple, but at least a hundred years after he was writing? Yes, but does it matter? No. So according to the director, the movie is set in 1372. Well, if the the battle of, what is it, Poitiers, how does it pronounce? Poitiers? Something like that. 
I don't speak French. <laughs> that is, that's like a real battle. So that places the movie. But Chaucer was definitely writing in the 1200s, I think, because he is writing in very hard to understand English. Maybe it's later, but... Uh, Chaucer was alive from sometime in the 1340s until 1400. Oh, that's later than I thought. Yeah. See, he did his research. He, he knows. He was, he was waiting for this... Mm-hmm. For this anachronism criticism. <laughs> so Brian Helgeland actually talked about the anachronism thing a lot. He said the movie was set in 1372 during a six-month period where Chaucer disappears from the historical record prior to having written the Canterbury Tales. And so his whole idea is like, I don't know, maybe he was like wandering around as a herald for a fake knight. I really enjoyed the lack of caring about yeah time in this movie he also made some like fun arguments some of which i think are are kind of interesting and some of which are just goofy like when he said in one interview the movie happens in 1372 like talking about the needle drops the pop music throughout it he said you know the movie is set in the 70s and we're using 70s music it's just a different 70s (laughs) you know i respect it i definitely respect that that uh that really uh emphasis on you know look just a couple hundred years off but it's the same it's essentially the same if you kind of believe you know time time is a flat circle it's you know 70s are always the 70s the point i thought you would like mark is that he pointed out like hey if i used orchestral score all the time that would also be anachronistic because orchestras were not invented in the 1370s yeah i think the movie should be gregorian chant start to finish just imagine I mean, that wasn't the, the only kind of music. Just imagine the background only haunting monks intoning in the perfect thirds and fifths or whatever. I mean, if it's a Monty Python vibe you're going for, they did actually bang coconuts together to make the horse hooves when the horse goes in the church. Did they really? That's how they made that sound effect. It sounds like it sounds like a horse. It's a good yeah. way of doing it. Uh I also did appreciate that the directors clearly read Chaucer because Chaucer is very much not about just the knights. When he said it's about everyone, I could just think, can't wait to read The Wife of Bath's Tale again. That woman's an icon for the ages. Yeah, I mean, I think the Chaucer character is a lot of fun in the way he is, you know... You wouldn't say this is a historical reenactment of Geoffrey Chaucer, but it feels like if this were the real world, you could imagine Geoffrey Chaucer being somebody like this. And I think that's kind of what I appreciate a lot about this movie in general, is how much it's like, you know, if this were now-ish, you know, a lot of these things feel timely or, 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 you know possible now like the way they talk the way they interact like the way they dance and i I appreciate that that's kind of part of his argument too is that like look we don't need to put all this like pomp and circumstance about oh it's renaissance let's make a fun movie about jousting that you can kind of relate to you know right this is something that helgeland talked about a lot on the press tour is the idea that like once you put in like gregorian chants and people's clothes are like too different and people are talking too differently it kind of alienates the audience and so part of the point here is this is a sports movie And so he's dressing it up like a sports movie in order to make the audience connect to it the way they do to, you know, Rocky or Miracle or whatever. I really appreciate trying to think through how a woman in the 1370s would crimp her hair. (laughs) (laughs) Because it means a blacksmith has fashioned this, like, piece of iron, two magic pieces of iron with squiggles that you have to stick in a fire to heat up and then press together in your hair yeah but here's the thing i'm pretty sure kate invented the bessemer process so (laughs) iron working is not an issue it's true she did manage to create better steel i 
Jocelyn's hair might be the thing that has stuck with me the most from this film. Oh, for me, it was definitely the farts. <laughs> the farts, but just... Because the first scene, she's just got her normal, like, long hair. And Period then the hair. next time she shows up, it's like fully spiked halo around her head. Dyed a bunch exactly. of different colors. Dyed, crimping. I was just, uh, 2001. Oh, it, it's that is maybe the most 2000s part of the movie. The hair and, and the soundtrack of pop music. Yeah, that too. The fact that this is the same year as Shrek. <laughs> Oh, says it, a lot about the state of music and movies. Uh, the Shrek soundtrack is a banger of a soundtrack and will forever be I'm not be criticizing so. the Shrek soundtrack. I used to just listen to the Shrek soundtrack. Like, I used to have it on CD and just listen right. to we it. We all owned it on <laughs> we CD. It we on were CD. alive in 2001 <laughs> and therefore required by law. It was part of No Child Left Behind. Everyone had to buy a copy of the Shrek soundtrack. The Bush administration was just... <laughs> So imposing the Shrek soundtrack on us all. That was actually one of the metrics that schools had to meet under No Child Left Behind. (laughs) Though if I can back up for a second is I I just have to say how I'm going to use the word relieved, how relieved I am that you just accept that this is a sports movie because my wife and and other people I've talked to say, no, this is a rom-com. My wife. And and (laughs) my wife. uh, I can't believe I just said that. I, that's so uh, embarrassing. Uh, But, uh, (laughs) Yeah, she like there's like this argument that it's a rom com, and I I get this I, is not a this is not a rom com. This is a sports movie, right? I Jocelyn is definitely playing second fiddle to the jousting. Yeah, if you look at the structure of the film, it's very much you know the the jousting is kind of the climax. It's every everything about it's much more closer to like a Rocky or a Creed, you know, in its structure. Especially in that, like, so many of the moments that drive uh, William's character development are built around not Jocelyn but other people. They're built around his relationship with his dad. They're built around his relationship mm-hmm. with uh, the disguised prince. They're built around his relationship with like his buddies Mark Addy and Alan Tudyk. Jocelyn is even less developed than a woman in a rom-com centered around a man. Like, she has no personality for this to be a rom-com. One, she doesn't work in media. (laughs) (laughs) Two, she didn't trip once in this movie, so she's not a relatable clumsy girl. I mean, at the very least, she wants to have some say in who she marries. She'd rather marry Heath Ledger than Rufus Sewell, who has resting evil face. (laughs) But, yeah, no, this is a sports movie. This is a sports comedy. Yeah, I didn't know that was contentious. This is so clearly a sports movie. You know, I maybe I've just been around the right or wrong people who who have, you know, told me otherwise. So I've I've always felt like embattled in my position and like I am fighting the good fight cuz it, honestly it's a hill I will die on for no reason other than I just have this unhealthy kind of uh, obsession with it. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I think this movie could do better is make Jocelyn more interesting. Oh yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Which for rom-com like Usually, the two romantic leads are better developed than she is in this movie. No, I think that's an absolutely fair point. And, and, and I think, in a way, that's definitely part of what helps date this movie as well. Uh, not, not that movies, are, I guess, are that much better nowadays, but that sort of kind of even tertiary, you know, love interest nowadays tends to have a little more complexity. Beyond just, my dad wants me to marry someone I don't like. <laughs> If this movie was made now, I really want Kate to be, like, full girl boss. Like, hashtag girl boss. Running her business. Oh, running Nike? Yeah. 
branded content only. But yeah, I mean, they built the movie as a sports movie too. A lot of the work they put in was focused on the jousting, which makes sense. It took a while before they determined they were going to have actual jousting in the movie. Like, they tried a bunch of special effects stuff, like doing close-ups of, like, people on sawhorses and, like, could we move them on a track? And they couldn't get something that worked. And finally, like, some of the guys on the special effects team and the stunt crew were like, well, we know some people who do jousting for, like, renaissance fairs and stuff. So they were just like, great, we'll just do jousting in the movie. The director was rightly worried. He's like, people are gonna die. But nobody did. Uh, The only injury on the movie was that while demonstrating a jousting move, Heath Ledger knocked out one of the director's front teeth. Wow. But the actual, like, filming of the jousting is, like, kind of cool. So they scored the lance tips so that they would break more easily than actual lance tips. And they made them out of balsa wood so it'd be a softer wood. And then they filled the hollow inside of the lances with splinters and uncooked linguine. So when you see the explosion, that's pasta flying all over the place. I read that as well. And the uncooked linguine was definitely the part that uh, had me giggling. You know, I wonder I wonder how much, like, leftovers they had to eat. <laughs> Wait, so you're saying, like, after the shoot, did they scoop up the linguine and cook it? You know, maybe, or or just, you know, it's not like you, you know, dumped the entire box of linguine in there, I'm sure. You know, so they, I'm sure they had some leftovers. I, the nice thing about jousting is you can have a stunt double look like anything, and you will have no idea, because they are covered head to toe. Right, it's perfect. You don't have to look for, like, mm, does this professional jouster look kind of like Heath Ledger? It doesn't matter. We won't know. There's so much jousting at Renaissance fairs. I'm surprised that they were so, like, worried about it. Well, they shot the movie in Prague to save money. So they did not have the American Renaissance fair industry available. They didn't have medieval times around the corner. Exactly. Uh, I want to go one time. That's where we're going. We all get vaccinated. vaccinated. We're all going to medieval we're times. We're going to medieval times. There's one in Maryland. <laughs> I was listening. Someone said medieval times only works because it's too dark to see the food. <laughs> I may have told this story on the podcast before because we've talked about medieval times on this podcast before. Because <laughs> it's the greatest. But when I was on a high school band trip to Toronto, one of the nights we went to medieval times. And you're like eating like half a bird with your hands. And my friend flagged down a server and was like, hey could I get, like, a fork for this? And the server responded, they didn't have forks in the Middle Ages. And my friend responded, but they had Pepsi? (laughs) (laughs) And I've never been able to get that out of my head. I was in Ireland, I think, on this, like, bus tour with my grandparents. Because I live a pretty wild and crazy life. And we went to a essentially medieval times themed dinner but it was in an actual castle from the 1100s and it was very fun because they took the approach you would not find in the states of just getting every guest shit-faced from the moment they walk in so they enjoy it so we walk in and they hand us mead and it's like you can have as much mead in the lobby as you want and then they have full pitchers and they're just like red or white And they just set the pitcher on the table. So you're just like going through wine after wine as people are performing madrigals. And you're eating like (laughs) chicken and bread. This sounds incredible. It was so fun. I got to the point where I was drinking, like in my drinking, where I was just getting annoyed that other people were talking because I was trying to enjoy the madrigals. Uh, what a night. So we should probably talk a little bit about A Knight's Tale. A movie we may or may not have named. I don't remember. 
Uh, yes. But um, so a Knight's Tale opened on May 11th. 2001 in second place behind The Mummy Returns. It made $16 million in its opening weekend and went on to gross $56 million in the United States and about $100 million in total. That said, its box office was somewhat controversial because in the summer of 2001, Columbia Pictures ran a series of print ads for some of the movies it had coming out that featured positive pull quotes, so like quotes from reviews, all from a reviewer named David Manning of the Ridgefield Press. Now, the Ridgefield Press does exist. It's a Connecticut weekly newspaper. But David Manning does not. So somebody in Columbia's marketing department made up a fake critic to make up fake good quotes to put in ads for these movies, including one for A Knight's Tale that called Heath Ledger the year's hottest new star. And it became this big scandal about how Columbia was deceiving moviegoers. And in 2005, they agreed to an out-of-court settlement where they paid $5 each to members of a class action suit who said they saw any of those movies based on those print ads. Heath Ledger was not a new star in 2001. No, but this is like part of that period of him really coming up. You know, I think 10 Things I Hate About You might have been the year before. It was two years before. I just looked. So I feel like, wasn't he the year's hottest new star like in 1999? That would make sense. Though I will, though I do think though, like as that kind of career progression goes, you know, because it's, it's like what there's one movie in between those two. And, like if you kind of look at that, he is kind of still growing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, because what he does, uh, uh, Lords of Dogtown soon after, and and uh, now we were talking Cold Mountain before, so now it's the only mountain I can think of. Uh, Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> Brokeback. They needed Brokeback right. Mountain afterwards, and that it's interesting his career path as I think about it. He like was so close to being just the guy who was in these sorts of like light movies, and then goes into being the Heath Ledger we remember as like this stone cold actor, you know, actor's actor in, in a way. So yeah, but no, that that's kind of beside the point of what we were talking about. The thing about the Columbia scandal is it reminds me of like hearing about how some companies will sometimes like hire or, or find somebody named like Ben Brantley or Roger Ebert, but not the actual one. And so they'll like attribute a quote to somebody with the same name, that same sort of like through the loophole. <laughs> I love that. Well, Columbia also got in trouble this summer because they ran a bunch of ads for the Patriot that were like viewer testimonials of like, wow, I saw the Patriot and it blew my mind. And all the people in those ads worked for Columbia. Isn't Columbia owned by Sony now? Yes, and they were at the time as well. Okay. I honestly kind of respect people that just do their absolute best to lie about films. Like, I love whenever a pull quote, the full context is shown and it's just like, a great movie. And then the full quote is like, no one would ever describe this as a great movie. (laughs) The one I love is on the home video release of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, where the quote on the top is from Richard Lawson at Vanity Fair, and it says, Burton's best film in years. And I'm like, that's that's really a backhanded compliment. <laughs> I don't think he meant that positively. <laughs> yeah. Uh. The other weird thing about the release of this movie is that the initial home video release was almost immediately recalled because it included a trailer for Spider-Man that showed the World Trade Center. Oh. And that's one of those movies that was edited after 9-11 to remove shots where you could see it. I... Uh... I saw a tweet today of someone's dating, like, Tinder profile, and their age, I think, was 25, but their picture was them in New York with the Twin Towers behind him, and it's just, you try harder, sir. Yeah, yikes. <laughs> it was one of the yikesiest Tinder profiles I've seen. I, would just, I wonder what, what, like, what 
he was thinking when he did that you know because yeah I, I think that that's such a because like kind of in contrast with the phenomenon of editing out the twin towers to like now when we even still see you know these people our age and, and, and older still see like a movie set pre-2001 and see the twin towers we all go at least i go oh you know that, that there's still some of that hit yep. that like yeah i kind of wonder like why he went to like the opposite end of the spectrum I wonder if it's like an ill-advised joke. I saw a movie in the 70s recently and the Twin Towers are just like the setting piece for New York. And it's still so weird. It's, every time that happens. I th- I think it may have been Arthur. I mean, I've been rewatching Sports Night and a shot of the Twin Towers is like what they do after a commercial break to reestablish you're back watching Sports Night. It was so definitive in New York. It's very odd. It's like jarring to see. Just like when Homer got, what, like $20,000 of tickets because he parked in between the Twin Towers. Look, if we're going to talk Simpsons, we got to talk about the fact that William's initial jousting strategy is the Homer Simpson boxing strategy of, look, you're not good, but you can take a hit, so you'll win eventually. It works for Homer, and it works for William. Yeah. Well, as the tagline on the poster for this movie said, he will rock you. Is that really the tagline? It is. It's in big letters right above the title. It's not a good tagline for this movie. But it's kind of telling you you're going to expect some of that like 70s action and 70s music, but they're from different 70s. You know, it's funny. I, I, it's interesting to me how contra- just controversial—not controversial. I think that might be a strong word, but how like panned this movie was at the time for that decision for starting off essentially with we will rock you as as though that was just some unheard of like travesty of film so i like the we will rock you until the characters in the movie are singing we will Mm, rock you mm. i like it as a mood setter i don't know that i need it to be a sing-along I agree. I actually think, funnily enough, I think I agree that, like, for some reason, seeing them sing does it. The clapping doesn't bother me so much because at the end of that bit, they have them, uh, uh, sh- the horn players, you know, and, and the music stops when they stop blowing the horn. And so to me, that's, yeah, I love that because it signals, like, oh, okay, mm. this is a stand in for whatever that music would be, you know, as opposed to, oh, no, this actually just is, we will rock you. I mean, Sophia Coppola hadn't directed Marie Antoinette when this came out. So yeah. no one had seen a hit music of the now in an old-timey movie. This movie crawled so Moulin Rouge could run. This is the same year as Moulin Rouge. <laughs> Moulin Rouge beat it for Best Musical Sequence at the MTV Movie Awards. I should watch Moulin Rouge. Isn't that Jude Law and Nicole Kidman too? No, that's Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. I get them confused a lot. Speaking of the MTV Movie Awards, this movie was also nominated for Best Kiss and Breakthrough Female for Shannon Sossaman. Breakthrough Female is one of the worst categories I've ever heard. She lost to Mandy Moore for A Walk to Remember, which feels fair. I hate that so much. Uh, By the way, if you're interested in more, I am now the sole author of the... (laughs) awards section of the A Knight's Tale Wikipedia page because there was nothing there and I was like I bet this was nominated for some MTV movie awards and I did some googling and found out it was true you're doing the lord's work I appreciate that I honestly do like the best kiss as a concept it's a great category they lost to Jason Biggs and Sean William Scott for American Pie 2 wow there were gay kisses two years in a row at the MTV movie awards oh wow I'm looking at the list because I was curious if it was still happening. 
Well, should we talk about the romance of a knight's tale? Yeah, I think we should dig in. Uh, fun fact, Kay Stu and Robert Pattinson won the award four consecutive years in a row. Which movie did they not win it for? No, I think they won it for all four. Because there are five Twilight movies. No, there's four Twilight movies. There's three. No, because the, there's two Breaking Dawn movies. Oh, so um, Breaking Dawn Part 2 was not nominated for Best Kiss. Wow, that's embarrassing. Did it win, though, for best scene where an adult man imprints romantically on a baby? 2013, do you want to guess the winner of Best Kiss at the MTV Movie Awards? Um, Can you give me a hint? Is it, like, Frozen? No, it's um, Jennifer Lawrence. Is it The Croods? No, it's Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper for Silver Linings Playbook. That's kind of a weird pull. I mean, that movie was a hit, but... I don't know about that. The other nominated movies are Perks of Being a Wallflower, Moonrise Kingdom, Django Unchained, and Ted. That's a weird. That's a weird list. It's a weird list. Yeah, it's a weak comp- competitive year. I have to say that that not, none of them, none of those are, are doing that one for me. I, I have to abstain from the vote. We talked about Best Kiss on our Notebook episode, and it's like when a movie is nominated for Best Kiss, you should know which kiss. Like it should not be up for debate which kiss in a movie it is, and you should be able to picture it. There's a year with three winners. It's a three-person kiss, I guess. Which one is that? We're the Millers from 2014. The Jason Sudeikis movie? Yeah. Weird. Sorry. I really... All right. This is such we a... We gotta talk about a night tale. We gotta set best kiss aside. Maybe we can do like a special episode on that sometime. It's such a fascinating Wikipedia article. We'll do a bonus episode sometime. We'll say, what if something won the best kiss? But for now... What if season two when? For now... Caleb, every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help us walk through the only parts of the movie that we care about, as I say, 40 minutes into this episode. <laughs> so uh, you're in charge as our guest, so why don't you guide us through the romance of A Knight's Tale? Great, yeah. Uh, well, for the first point I have, it's that this is literally the worst time to start a relationship. You know, he because what he's doing is illegal. He's like just spent all this time practicing, getting ready to joust. He's, you know, of course, part of the central point of the movie is he was born a serf. He's not supposed to be a noble, not supposed to be a knight. And like, it's very much illegal to be doing what he's doing. And so it's very much puts everything in jeopardy even before he starts his first tournament to just, hey, girl, how are you doing? Which, of course, I mean, it's not his fault. He just apparently sees someone so beautiful he has to unknowingly desecrates a church by riding a horse into it so i just so yeah my first point is just that this is literally the worst time to start a relationship and what would you do with my name sir hunter call me a fox for that is all i am to you a fox oh then a fox you shall be until i find your name my foxy lady i think that you would notice if you walked into a church on a horse regardless well, he's of how... so enraptured by her beauty also she seems kind of nunnish at the beginning so i thought she was gonna be like a nun which would be a fun twist i also thought that i think it's just supposed to be that like as an unwed woman she needs to be very pious because of course she can't be doing anything too scandalous you know we have that keeper of the cathedral who advises her to pray her years come swiftly and pray that her beauty fades so that she can better focus on doing the Lord's work. That was one of the reasons I thought she was a nun. If she's, like, being told by a priest to be ugly so she could focus on the Lord. Well, I guess that's advice for all of us, then, and not just nuns. Yeah. Everyone, pray your beauty goes away so you can focus on the Lord. Well, as somebody from the Bible Belt, you know, everything revolves around 
your your piousness and your uh, uh, and your ability to evangelize. And so, you know, if I'm being too distracting, and I know I am, I know just how good looking I am. If I'm being too distracting, how can you have pious thoughts? I mean, if a girl's shoulders are shown in class, all of the boys are going to fail the test. So obviously it's a huge problem. So is that our like main point here, Caleb? Is that William riding into town to compete in this tournament sees Jocelyn and just can't focus on anything else. Yes, absolutely. And and I will say, though, that it does kind of speak to, in a way, it is a bit of a character building moment for him because it just, we've already seen how focused he gets on Jocelyn. Like when he sets his mind on something, it's all he sees. He has horse blinders on. So it's the same with Jocelyn, as we'll see throughout this movie, that once he sees... As it is with Jocelyn. Yeah, exactly. They both begin with J. So that's exactly the, the, the connection we're supposed to get. So that's why he has this like immediate magnetic connection to her because he has this affinity for the letter J. So even though he doesn't know her name and she won't give her name, he knows like there's something J-ish about you. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's the only reasonable assumption we can we can make at, at that point. That it's just special, just born inherent talent. And that's how he gets everywhere he goes is just through the letter J. All right. So point two. Yes. Point two is uh, the arrival of the competition, Adamar. So it's, I think it's uh, around William's first, or Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein, sorry, first uh, jousting competition. Right, because jousting is a sport for nobility. So Heath Ledger, the peasant William, in order to compete to make money, he has to pose as a nobleman, which, as you said, is a very serious crime, punishable by death. But he's posing as a nobleman, and he's able to do this because they met naked Paul Bettany going down the road and naked Paul Bettany or Paul Buttony, as I referred to him in my notes, because we see a lot of his butt is playing Jeffrey Chaucer, who as a writer can forge papers of nobility and also serves as like his hype man. Let me just say Paul Bettany's performance in this is one of my favorite things about it. Every time I like, I used to, this is God tier Bettany. It absolutely is. And I used to know his little speeches just by rote. I used to just know it, you know, I, I, when was this like in high school? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't even, I, I don't even know like how often I watch this movie to just know about walking in the garden of his turbulence. Behold my Lord Ulrich, the rock, the hard place. Like a wind from Gelderland, he sweeps by, blown far from his homeland in search of glory and honor. We walk in the garden of his turbulence. Everything. It just got me so hype. And it's only on rewatches that I began to understand, oh, what he's doing, playing towards the crowd. He's kind of breaking barriers, things like that. It doesn't matter to me, okay? It's all about his ability to, to, to be a wordsmith and, and hype me up. It gets me going. According to an IMDb trivia fact, so that it may or may not be true. In the scene where he gives that big speech, and you see it in full, a lot of the background actors were Czech and did not speak English. So the reason for that like awkward pause was because like they didn't quite get how they were supposed to be reacting in that moment. So Mark Addy yelling was like, we're all going to yell now. And then they did it. And there are other takes where they just cheer when Bettany stops talking, but they didn't use it in the movie, which I love. <laughs> Because it gets at, like, the sense of danger, the precariousness of the con they're trying to pull. And, and like, that same sort of, like, walking on a knife's edge of the way Chaucer just handles himself and the the Mm -hmm. words he uses to kind of obfuscate in a way and kind of just look at the pretty words. And so, like, it does kind of show this also, for them, these these peasants, these serfs who he's trying to talk to who might not even be able to read, you know, how Watt and, uh, and Roland, like, 
react like you're a what a writer they like you know that that same sense of what did this guy just say it, it also like really leads to that too and so it, it, it does kind of i don't know i just think that that's a brilliant element of it too and the way it does continue to serve the story so did we talk about adamar we have not talked about adamar resting I evil face Oh, that, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, point two, when William is, is about to have his, essentially, his first jousting match, Count Adamar arrives, and he's the, the competition. From that moment on, you're supposed to know he's the cool kid who's who's going for the same woman, for Jocelyn, who we don't know his name yet. And he is a, unlike William at every turn. So, yeah, so the main point is, look, here's the competition, the person who, who you're supposed to hate and is the contrast to our hero. And you are? Well, I am, um... You've forgotten? Or your name is, uh, um... Ulrich. Von Lichtenstein from Gelderland. Oh, I'd forget as well. What a mouthful. He's actual nobility. He leads a company of mercenaries, I believe. I like a way you know he's extra mean and jousting is that his lances are tipped with little iron fists. So it's like he, he's not only hitting you with a lance, he's kind of punching you a little bit. And I also appreciate as part of that, that he's in all black. I mean, it's it's very much like going back to the black hat aesthetic of he, he's the bad guy because he's dressed like a medieval Darth Vader. And, and because he's played by Rufus Sewell. <laughs> I feel so bad because he could be the nicest person in the world and he's never going to get cast as anyone but a cruel villain. Yeah, it hasn't been that long since we talked about him on the holiday. Who was he in the holiday? He is the terrible newspaper boyfriend. Oh, right. Yeah, resting evil face. Poor Rufus. And I just think in, in that he is just really well cast. It's a shame that he's typecast, but he is really well cast in this. He's good at it. He is. And that's the thing is, and it really kind of, it's in a way, the way that he interacts with Jocelyn versus the way he interacts with Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein, William, is actually part of, I think, what helps them, and by them I mean Jocelyn and William fall in love, is because I think, you know, there's something about the way that William's also a bit of an outcast who is always fighting that I think, you know, if I'm projecting, which I probably am, that I think kind of helps kind of turn things around that like she talks about how every knight in the tournament has sworn to one uh, win it for her except for William. And so it's this kind of lack of airs that he brings to it that is kind of brought in a contrast by Adamar existing and by Adamar being such a dick. Oh, this movie would not work without Adamar. No. He's no. a great villain. Oh, yeah, exactly. And you need a good villain to, to help kind of spur the story along and be a good catalyst. And I think, you know, there is no romance. There is no movie, of course, without Count Adamar, protector of his enormous manhood. So I think this brings us to the next point. We've met Adamar. He was mean to William. And he's clearly, like, sort of swinging his way through and as the winner of everything, believes he should also win Jocelyn. And her opinion on it doesn't matter all that much. Bit of a Gaston air. Yeah, he does use antlers in all of his decorating. I was wondering. We didn't get a chance to see his house, but I assume he must use antlers. So, Caleb, what is point three? So point three, I think this happens actually very soon after, but I do think it's important to kind of distinguish these two. And it's that she finally reveals her name. Up to this moment, much of their relationship has been based on, hey, what's your name? You know, foxy lady. You know, uh, that is a quote from the movie. He does call her a foxy lady. Well, he does that after she says, think of me yeah. as a fox. That is that. That is fair. He's just playing with the imagery, which let me be... Fair. At times, this movie does kind of fall into that 
and by fall elevate into some like almost Shakespearean <laughs> like kind of poetry in a way and then you hear Foxy Lady and it's just it, it's this strange mix between the two but that's beside the point the point being up until this point he's been the hunter because she doesn't exactly know his name and he doesn't know her name so yeah, he's the hunter she's the fox and so that's kind of been their relationship up to this point until finally they've built enough rapport that she finally reveals her name and it's that moment on that they kind of become uh, a couple you know they kind of become actually hey this relationship has started it is strange to think i haven't seen you since a month i have seen the new moon but not you i have seen sunsets and sunrises but nothing of your beautiful face she asks what color tunic he's going to wear to the party so she can match him. So they have to make a tunic out of their tent because, again, he is not a real nobleman. And then he has to learn how to dance, which I think is a great scene. I love when he pays off Chaucer's gambling debt with just the head of the statue. Just, like, knocks the head of the horse off on a table and hands it over. I mean, currency would not be that common. That makes sense. Yeah, it was so funny because I was like, wait, what's happened? It took me a second to figure out what was going on. But it, it did make me wonder, like, so do you just trade? Like, do you melt it down? Do you trade it for coins? Okay, yeah, okay. that's what you do. Yeah. I, I always wondered. Because, like, monetary value is largely determined by, like, weight of precious metals. Mm-hmm. So you could, like, weigh the thing and just be like, this is equivalent to however much money. Or you could melt it down and, and it could be coined. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get official coin out of it. But you can just make, like, a brick of gold and then weigh it, and people will accept it. So they go to the the ball, banquet, whatever, and he is at first kind of trapped by Rufus Sewell, who is like, oh, yeah, like, show us a dance from your country. I'm going to put you on the spot. And it's kind of a nice moment because he's making something up that is clearly stupid. Like, he's making up a, a bad dance. But then Jocelyn goes out and starts doing the dance with him. So it's like, all right, I guess we're all doing this. And then it goes from classic medieval music into a modern pop song and then they dance and it's very fun because even the dance then becomes more modern dancing like with the same moment that Mm -hmm. the needle drops the same same moment that it becomes golden years which which might be one of the best uses of the song if you ask me i think this is the sequence that got the mtv movie award nomination for musicals i believe that i i I actually would understand i completely understand that i think that's done rightfully so that is justified because it is it's a lot of fun and it it, again to talk about the sort of anachronism discussion that it really you know if, if if those were their ragers of the time was those silly little you know dances they were doing well that's that's exactly what you know we are doing in our our 70s essentially is just our little group dances right that's where i think that stuff all works for me where it's like setting that kind of tone it doesn't work for me quite as well when like they're doing the training montage before the first joust and it's playing <laughs> low rider <laughs> like that doesn't do the same tone setting for Agreed. me but I like the idea. Because it is, I mean, because they, they, they still pick fun songs, whether or not they always fit. Yeah, that's always the question. But what I also appreciate, kind of, and maybe it's not appreciate, maybe my question is just how mad Count Adamar gets that it goes really well for William. Like, he's just, like, sitting there stewing. Like, it looks like his world is falling apart until he just has to leave. And I appreciate that, like, it, it almost makes me think that, like, oh, the amount of, I tried to embarrass him, now I'm embarrassed by, now I have to leave. So then William sort of goes on the tournament circuit. They're going from town to town where tournaments are taking place and eventually decides to send a love letter to Jocelyn. 
And this love letter is like crowdsourced by his whole like team of bros, like redheaded Alan Tudyk and Mark Addy and all those guys. Well, and to be fair, this is after this is around the time where where point four comes about, which is oh, okay. they they have a falling out, which is he wins, but he didn't beat Adamar. He wins a tournament, he doesn't beat Adamar. Then she comes up and he's like, "Hey, what are you wearing wearing to the ball?" And he's like get out of here i don't like i don't want to talk to you right now because he's so focused on adamar that she is just this side this side project that is just bothering him at the moment sir ulrich uh. i've come to see what you'll wear to banquet tonight nothing well then we'll cause a sensation for our dressed match well don't you ever get tired of putting on clothes much like in the movie the sports are the main <laughs> focus and the romance is a side <laughs> element <laughs> See, it's all there within the structure. If only I talked to y'all before when I had all these uh, conversations about it. Because cause it, cause it, it kind of goes to show that in the end, not at the end of the day, but at least during that moment of his life and his journey, what matters most is being the best at jousting and beating Adamar. And so he he like, you know, brushes her aside and she gets mad. And she's like, you know what? I You're the same as the rest. I don't want to talk to you. So they don't see each other for a while. So point four is that, okay, they, they have a falling out. And so they don't see each other for a while. And then that's when they send the letter. It's the, oh, I haven't seen you in so long. I miss you. And they crowdsource, like you said, this brilliant letter. And they intersperse it with them. It's like the most romantic thing each one of them has ever heard put together in a letter. It's great. Which imagine when reading it would just be kind of like jumping around. <laughs> a lot of mixed metaphors. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's there's a thing is like I miss you as the sun misses the flower in winter. <laughs> oh, and what what else is there? what oh, and uh there's something about the pieces of my broken heart couldn't fit through like could fit through the eye of a needle or something. And and yet still it magically works. Like Jocelyn is crying by the end of the letter, and so is Watt who delivers it. Who helped write it? <laughs> Right, he's heard it before. He's just a big softy. So they meet up in London, I think, for, for the, the world Champions. championship. And I actually liked this. She demands that he lose a jousting competition to prove that he loves her because everyone will win, but winning feeds your own ego. Like, you're not actually winning for her, you're winning for yourself. Right, so losing shows that he's actually doing it for her. Which, like, frankly, asking someone to lose a joust is like asking them to risk death. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong there. Like, I think it's a, a little bit of an extreme ask. Yeah, he could lose an eye, as they make clear. But he's mostly okay. He just kind of gets bludgeoned. Because I was, I was watching this with my wife, uh, you know, Melissa. I just... I guess for the listeners, she's been on she's the show. She's been on the yeah, show, friend yeah. Of the, friend of the pod. And she actually made the point that, like, actually his winning has to do with his his entourage as well. Like, they need to eat as well. And, of course, they don't know about the bet that they have going on. Because, of course, with Chaucer's gambling problems, they've now bet that William will win. They bet everything on William winning. And so, right when he's been asked to lose, they have everything to lose as a group. So, Melissa made the point that, like, it's actually winning isn't just about William. It's about everyone around him too getting to eat like he actually has everybody on his shoulders as well yeah he's supporting a crew he's like uh he's like cuba in jerry Maguire. like he needs a good contract because of all the people he's helping out show me the money yeah but as we all could have seen coming jocelyn then is like no you have to win now and that's the thing is it's it's the 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 kind of I'm gonna call them demands. I'm sure there's another another name for it about she's like okay no you have to lose and then it's like okay how do you know he? it's even still possible for him to win? Like, did you look at the bracket? Are you keeping an eye on the group points? Like, this is about to be really difficult. It's like counting on other people to lose. Like, he wins against all odds. But 
they do have a little nice interaction at night. Mmm. Mmm. About to go wow wow. Is this point five? This is still this is still part of point four because point five comes later, and to me, it's it's a quick little moment, and it comes towards the end of the film. But because point four, it it honestly the the difficult thing here is that in this moment, she says they call you William. Why is that? But she doesn't seem to really connect the dots about his station in life. She just is like, oh, your people call you William. I don't care. You know, it really is just she basically is like, I love you. I don't care what your name is. Yeah, let's let's do do the deed essentially. Like she she's just very much like, oh, we've made up i don't care what your name is we're 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 pals well not pals a little more than that it's implied that they have sex although he is very much in pain so yeah i don't imagine that would be a good idea i feel like it would not be healthy also anytime people mention you need a doctor in like movies set before the 1950s part of me is just like don't get a doctor you're more likely to survive without medical intervention yeah i think that like jocelyn and william should probably just like kind of fool around and not actually have sex because there's no way that would be good for no him. way i mean especially when like i feel like realistically he would have leeches on if the surgeon had come they would like put leeches on him or something at this point he'd just be actively bleeding into a bucket the whole time <laughs> right <laughs> gotta get the bad blood but, out. hey you know what i, I don't want to you know i'm not gonna kink shame maybe they're into that M- maybe there's a bit of you know sadomasochism and getting him all beat up before they they have sex who knows you know i'm just spitballing here but they bone and then like the next day they're yeah the next day i think he goes to see his dad right right because well because this i think she think all of that happens while they're in paris at the paris oh right i forgot about yeah the paris tournament and so it's then they go to the quote-unquote world championships in london and it's there that you know he 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 gets all the way to through the final then he goes see his dad and then that's when count adamar finds out and you know, he arrives, William's having a great day, and that's when Chaucer and Jocelyn show up, and they're like, um, they found out, they're about to arrest you. And William is like, so you know now who my lies, you know now who I am, does it matter? And she just magically pretty much goes, nope. Run, and I will run with you. Jocelyn, I cannot run. I'm a knight, and I will put myself to the hazard. A knight in your heart, but not on paper, and paper's all that matters to them. In just about any other movie, especially if this were a rom-com, that would be the big moment. That'd be the moment where you you lied Mm. to me this entire time. And so to me, my point five is that she just immediately accepts that he's been lying to her this entire time. She's just like, that's fine. I think that she kind of had a sense of it from the fact that everyone who actually knew him used a different name. Like, I think she's not that surprised by this revelation. Yeah. And I like that the movie, in that reading, gives her the credit of mm. having figured it out, given the mm. amount of time they've spent together. I think that's probably the best. I Because, I, you know, I... I was a philosophy major, you know, whatever. So part of that was always about, okay, what's the most generous reading you can give to the position, the argument that you're critiquing, you know, so that it actually looks better when you're talking about it. And I think that actually probably is probably the most, because she's smart. And I think they kind of show over and over again how smart she is that she is kind of constrained by the expectations of the time and that she feels a little out of place. You can see the way she reacts to Adamar. She bristles at it. The way that William kind of lets her be who she wants to be. And that even from the beginning, like kind of his lack of airs throughout does kind of clue her off that, okay, he's not like other girls. She's very good at navigating the mores of the time in a way that helps him along, like the way that she helps him at the banquet. But yeah, I think that she is not all that surprised by the revelation, and that's why it's not a big thing. And I, and I think, in a way, that's part of what I appreciate, too, is that, you know, he, he, of course, makes a big deal about everything. 
you know, and I guess right, some, rightfully so, sometimes not rightfully so. But he does, he makes the, this big moment of like, now that you know what I am, do you still want to be with me? And she's like, yeah, I'll be poor. I don't care. Like, let's run. Let's do this. And and I, I think that to me, like, as through the arc of this relationship, that that, I, I find that actually very sweet. That like, somebody who's grown mm. up in nobility, and he does make the point, look, you, you weren't poor. You've never, you don't know what it's like. But I think... He is maybe giving her enough credit as well there that like, you know what, maybe she does. And like, in a way, there's a freedom into it. And that like, she gets to choose who she gets to be with instead of having to marry Adamar as her father wants her to. But things work out because one of William's bros from the circuit is actually an English prince in disguise. Who then knights him. So now he is a knight and they can be together. (laughs) And then Adamar tries to kill him in front of everyone. (laughs) But fails. I mean, it's just the audacity and clearness that, like, he did it. That, like, William essentially has, like, a log sticking out of his shoulder. Yeah. And no one really does anything. Right. Yeah, there's no official... Nobody's like, hey, wait a second. It really is just like, eh, shit happens. Like, maybe he'll take a hit to his honor. But, uh, surprise, surprise, he wins the last joust against the evil man and the movie ends with them kissing Yay! Yay! is this the kiss that was nominated for best i would assume it's a good so one. it's a good kiss i i guess so yeah all right after watching all of this saga do you find the romance between william and jocelyn believable I do. I mean, especially because it is over months. They have issues. But I, I, I do. I find this a very believable romance. Especially as a period romance where you wouldn't necessarily have a ton of interaction, even like before mm-hmm. getting married. They actually give the relationship through montage, mostly, time to breathe, which I feel like it's been a while since we've watched a movie with a relationship that is longer than two weeks. <laughs> I mean, I watched like Disney's Aladdin this morning, and that takes place over three days. So I find it to be fairly believable. Heath Ledger is so hot. So I buy that. Especially once he like cuts his hair and shaves. Yeah. I could easily see him like walking down the street and just being like, hmm, sign me up. One of the few men who I don't think needs a beard. Like, some men, like, need a beard, and then it's like, boom. They are very attractive. Oh, but he, he, his beard is bad. Yeah, without the beard, he is he is a dime, for sure. So, Caleb, every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale, where zero means you believe none of the romance, 10 means you believe every beat of it. So where would you rate the romance of A Knight's Tale? That is a, that's a tough question. I, I have been thinking about this. You know, with, with the caveat that I included earlier, I'm going to give this something like a, I'm going to give it a seven. I think I, I find it really believable, especially after you make the great point about like for period drama. I think it's, I, I think, you know, it kind of it has space. It breathes. They have difficulties. They get over it. I, I find it relatively believable. Will, what are you thinking? I'm I'm thinking higher for all the reasons we've talked about. I was leading towards like a seven or eight because I mean, based off of reading about how nobles at the time talked about peasants, it's really hard to believe that she could get over that because some of the things that are written, it's like it is one step shy of nobles going out and hunting peasants for sport. Okay, you make a strong point there. <laughs> like literally they're like these things are animals that deserve to die. So, I think 
this culture of the time leads me to deduct a couple points. All right, so maybe a seven is where we... Though I'm so glad you're the one who first broached like eight or nine because that's where I really wanted to say if I'm being completely honest. But I was really trying to like, okay, let me underplay. Let me let me bring it back down. No, you should say what you want to say. If you want to say an eight or a nine, say an eight or a nine. Then I will say eight or nine, even after what? If I have... Pick it. You want to go eight? You want to go nine? I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going nine. Let's do it. Especially because almost in spite of the fact of what what Mark brought up, because then it's almost even more like, you know, I'm going to go against the grain. I'm going to love this guy no matter what. (laughs) If I hadn't just read direct quotes from that era that made me sick to my stomach, I'd probably be a bit more charitable. (laughs) But I read an article online that was just like, oh, God. All right. Now, let's let's work through some of these wrap-up questions. Do we think Jocelyn or William is dateable? A- absolutely. I think William is, for sure. For me, no, because he loves the sport too much. I don't want to date a jouster for the same reason we've talked about, like, not wanting to date a superhero. Like, that guy's gonna <laughs> He's die. He's gonna die any minute. And the fact that he has trouble jousting and then takes it out on her shows that he has some issues to work through. Jocelyn, there's nothing wrong with her, so I guess... <laughs> But I yeah, feel I like she could be developed more. If you did have to choose a person in this movie to date, who would you pick, Caleb? Easy. Kate. Yeah. Yeah. I think Great she's, choice. she's, I mean, obviously she's, she's a widow. So like, you know, she, I think she understands what it takes to maintain a relationship. She will literally love you until you die. And <laughs> I mean, she, she runs her own business. She's independent, you know, so that like, I, I think that's someone you, you can actually really build a great relationship with. And, you know, she, I think she's just really well-rounded and complex. Actually, she, she's one of the more complex characters of this movie, I think. I mean, I think Kate is the answer I would give to. Yeah, I think she is clearly the best answer. Roland seems oh, good solid. Shot. Roland also solid, yeah. Do you think Jocelyn and William will stay together? I really don't know. Divorce isn't exactly popular at this time with the Catholic Church. Okay, strong point. That being said, though, if they've already overcome the fact that he's a serf, you know what I mean? I think that they, they have a lot of common ground that they can work from. I think they've like opened up some good levels of communication. I think you're, you're, you're right to kind of think about, okay, he can be strong-willed. She can be strong-willed. You know, it doesn't kind of lend itself always to good communication. He might always spend time away jousting. But I, I, have, I, I have a good sense of it. I, I have a good feeling that they, they'd be able to work it out. So one thought that I was having was like, do they make it to the point of getting married? Like, is the life... Like, he's a knight now, but he doesn't have that much money. Like, he doesn't have, like, property or anything. He is friends with the Black Prince. That's true. probably would give him some land. But this is my kind of thing. was, like, at some point before the wedding, does Jocelyn say, like, "Mm, I don't know about this. Except that the wedding could conceivably happen very quickly in this time period. And he would get control of her lands, which she would have. Mm. Oh, that's true. And also to kind of go back to that last bit, like she was already willing to give it all up and be poor for him. I mean, maybe it was spur of the moment. Maybe it was adrenaline. I don't know. But, you know, especially if it is a rather quick marriage or or, or even, you know, I think it's something she's clearly already given some thought to as well. Okay. I am very curious about this, Caleb. A lot of the movies we cover have been adapted into stage musicals. It's actually been a little while since we've had one. Well, Night at the Museum is in the works. I do want to ask... Should A Knight's Tale be adapted to a Broadway musical? Cards on the table. Caleb directed me in a musical (laughs) in college. 
Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm a bit predisposed to say yes to just about anything to make it a musical. I think my answer is yes, but I think it has to decide whether or not it wants to be a jukebox musical in the way that it's almost mm-hmm. a jukebox film, or if they want to create all new music that kind of splits the difference between the 70s, the two different 70s decades. I'd be really curious to see how they would tackle jousting on stage. That's my question, too. I think the jousting in this movie is filmed really well. It's exciting to watch. You can always track what's going on. I think it's very well done. And I just don't know how you make it quite as dynamic on stage. I I thought about this, too. And my guess would be you'd have to kind of go like Julie Taymor Lion King route. Like, you know, some version of puppetry, Mm -hmm. you know, let the time and space kind of be a little slower, romanticized, elevated. You'd have to kind of lean into it being, okay, we're not getting horses. We're not actually jousting. So like in a way, you might have to like make some sort of conceit about, okay, we're watching people tell this story. We're watching people tell a knight's tale or something. I mean, you could also do it around one of the other tournament events. Like, you could do it around, like, the sword fighting that's a part of these tournaments, too. Oh, that would be easily or done, yeah, for they sure. they could joust, like, I did at elementary school on those little plastic scooter boards. Exactly. Just have someone push you on the scooter board. <laughs> I-, I would love to see them on, like, what is it, a hobby horse, where it's just the horse's head and a stick. Uh, perfect. I would like, like to see them on one of those. <laughs> Excellent idea. All right, I think that's it for A Knight's Tale. Thank you for being on the show, Caleb. Oh, my pleasure, really. Next week, we'll be celebrating the holiday by taking a look at the classic 1940s MGM musical Easter Parade. A movie I have never heard of. (laughs) Well, it was suggested by multiple listeners, so that's always a great thing to get to do. I mean, I'm very excited. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps new people to find the show. All right, Caleb, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Uh, I would have to say the best piece of dating advice is don't compare your partner to a horse's flank. They will not like it. Fair. All right. My advice, a little sacrilege, a little church desecration goes a long way in a relationship. Apparently not a deal breaker. Uh, My answer is going to be if... The person you're interested in is doing something that seems a little weird, but also harmless. Go for it. Like with William's dance at the banquet. All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Jane jumping down the lane, joking and a jiving.